0: To be very transparent, a lot of white men in my career, they have actually been bamboozled because they're like, well, she went to Stanford, so therefore we're the same. And then we start getting to know each other and I start talking about some real truths. They're very shocked because I went to a specific school that they have deemed is a specific way that they expect me to perform and behave in a way that I actually don't perform in.
1: My friends, You are about to meet someone who you can feel when they walk in the room. You will get to spend some time today with myself and Ms. Lexi B. Alexandria Butler, widely known as Lexi B, is a sought-after figure in the tech industry, renowned for her transformative work and exceptional ability to cultivate executive leadership and promote workplace equity. With an extensive background in prominent Silicon Valley technology companies, Lexi B. elevated her mission of empowering professionals to new heights. By launching a new podcast, You Can Sit With Us, which P.S. I'm in the first season. Wink, wink. This groundbreaking repository service is a powerful medium for celebrating and discussing the transferable skills that are essential for building the professional life individuals aspire to have. Bringing her unique blend of entertainment and expertise to the table, Lexi B is poised to revolutionize the way corporate entities approach professional growth and development. Ladies and gentlemen, buckle up, because you're about to meet one of my favorite humans. So, Lexi B, you guys. When Lexi B walks in the room, there is a ripple in the energetic universe, and it's like, She's here. That's the vibe she gives. She is one of the most sparkling, compelling presences you'll ever know in your life. And part of that, I think, is just who you are, Lexi. But part of that, I think, is also just the journey you've been on. I feel like each of us is in a video game and we're like picking up power pellets and we're grabbing cool swords along the way. You've had a really interesting life and career and i'd love for you to talk about like how your path as an adult human or even i don't whatever you can talk go mm-hmm. back further than that has helped you amass all of these power sources that cause you to be so electric as a human
0: being well, so let's start there that's a very deep question no one's ever asked me that before i think it's really when you go back to my childhood i am a product of a doctor and a teacher and growing up in the midwest My parents had very traditional jobs, right? Where it's like, you must go to medical school to become a doctor. So my dad had a path of what he wanted to do. My mom had a path. You must do these classes and do these certificates to become a teacher. And so I grew up in this household where there was always a path. Yet my parents were very big on, you can be anything you want to be as long as you put in the work to be great at it. So growing up in the Midwest, growing up in a place where it's like beer, baseball, and bowling, (laughs) You know, that's all we know is beer, baseball and Boeing. Then you have the teachers and you have the doctors and you have the preachers, but it's beer, baseball and Boeing. I was like, I don't want to be here. I just want to come back for our Hallmark Christmas and then I want to go home, wherever that is. I want something bigger and ended up going to college in California. And that really opened my eyes to how people don't have paths, but yet do really cool things. Put a pin in that for a second, because you didn't just come to school in
1: California. You went to Stanford. Which I just want to, I want to roll it back because I grew up in California and still when I walk on Stanford's campus, I cannot believe a place like that exists. Like when you first, you grew up in St. Louis, is that right? Did I When you first got to that campus, what did you think?
0: Oh, I was like, I'm here. (laughs) That was was it. And do you understand that comes from a very non-bragging place, but a very confident and self-assured place. I knew in third grade that I was going to Stanford University. Oh, my God. So when I walked on campus, I was like, and this is what happens. I'm not shocked. It was beautiful. It was grand. And there was no imposter syndrome. It was like, I am supposed to be here because when I was nine years old, my dad asked me where I wanted to go to college. And I said Oxford, because that was the farthest college away from St. Louis. And he looked at me and he said, you get the 50 sticks. In my nine-year-old view at the United States map, I was like, California is the farthest away from here. And then he looked at me and he said, great, you have to go to a private school because I am not paying for public school prices as an out-of-state student. Out-of-state. Yes. Yes. Right. So people think my dad is hilarious, but he was really about finances. He was like, go to in-state in Missouri. Cool. But I'm not about to take you to college at a public school. And I find out that your roommate is paying four grand And I'm 50, 10 years old. This man really just kind of put things in perspective very quickly. And I had a cousin who went to Stanford and her mom went to Stanford. And so I talked to my mom because her sister went to Stanford. And I was like, where did Aunt Teresa go to school in California? And she said, Stanford. And I was like, I'm going to Stanford. And my mom was like, so why do you want to go to Stanford? And I was like, because dad said he wouldn't pay for a public school institution. And it's really far away. And I think my parents, We're cool with it because they were like, that's a great dream for her to have. And we're not going to go into detail. So my mom took me to Borders and we got one of those college books. And she said, if you want to go to Stanford, here are the grades you have to have. And I was like, "Bet." that was it. Yeah.
1: You know, I just want to acknowledge your family because that is not the experience of a lot of young girls. You know, I remember telling my, my mom I wanted to go to law school and she was like, oh, you have to be pretty smart for that. And I was like, okay, well, that's not great. (laughs) So that explains a lot. So this is why I think I love being around you, Lexi, is that your confidence is not some kind of shell game overcompensation thing for some kind of imposter syndrome. Your confidence is bone deep.
0: Yeah. And it started with them. My parents were the ones who were like, you can do anything you wanted to do. My parents were also the realistic ones. I remember I played the flute. And band. And I was okay. And I remember my dad came to me and he was like, I love that you're playing this instrument. And he's like, so what do you want to do with it? And I'm like, maybe I can play for like the symphony, right? I was that dreamer. And my dad was like, that is wonderful. I want you to be okay with the fact that you may not play for the symphony and flute can be cool too. That was like his very lovingly way of like, bro, you don't got that. (laughs) You don't got that, (laughs) right? But then on the flip side, when they saw the talents that I really had, they really infused it. They were like, okay, so we're just going to go to Pluto with this. We are going to ride this wave to the end. So at nine years old, when I said, I want to go to Stanford, I think for them, I was way too young for them to tell me that I wasn't smart. And I did excel in my classes in third grade. But for them, they said, I think the most important thing is for her to know what it means to go to a school like that. And they were always willing to prepare for it. And there were many moments where I was like, I'm not going to get in. I had a lot of teachers that told me I wasn't going to get in. There was a lot of self-doubt. I remember junior year, we had the conversation with the college counselor and they were like, you may not get in. And I was crying and my dad bought a Stanford baseball cap and came home. And he was like, I will give you this when you get in right so they were just always there to say wow we will lift you up when everyone says you cannot because that's the lesson the lesson is not succeeding the lesson is learning how to get back up and i think that's very a very big foundation of of my career actually
1: so you take your stanfordness and you get into the tech world
0: accidentally yes so what year are we talking about i started my first job in tech on july 5th 2011 yeah. I'll never forget that day. Yeah.
1: So July 5th, 2011. So I hope this is okay to say, but when I was coming up through tech, because I, that's where I come from too, there were not a lot of black women. No, there's still there. black men for that matter. Mm. So what was it like for you? And where did you, like, you've been at Airbnb, you've been at Twitter, you've been at, I mean, you've
0: been at all the big names. What was that like? It was hard. I remember. So number one, I was part of a new college grad program. I think that now we have a lot more diversity and story of how people get into tech. Mm In 2023, I had a very traditional route. I was in a new college grad program. The company that I was at had two to 300 new college grads. And there was just a lot going on at one time. It wasn't just, I'm the only black person in this room. It was a lot of imposter syndrome, I accidentally got into tech. This was not the goal. Wow. <laughs> the other goal didn't work out. This was not the goal. So I walked in thinking, I just need to pay my car note and start paying student loans. And I'm going to do this while I figure it out. And then I'm going to try to get back to the other goal. So there's this imposter syndrome of, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like I actually do not know. Yeah. It's not an imposter syndrome statement. This is truth. My title was engineering program manager. And I was like, I don't know what that is, right? (laughs) So there's that. And then being in a new college grad class of all these people who are my age, who've spent six, seven years trying to be in tech. And here I am. And I'm like, I don't know how to spell it, but we gonna make this work, right? (laughs) There is walking into the new college grad. I think we had a lunch or something and being keenly aware that, I am the only Black woman. I'm one of two Black people. And the other person is a Black man from Kenya who made it very clear that we are different. So that was my first week at work. And it was very daunting. But because, again, my parents have a musical theater background. So I always joke with people. And I'm like, I can fake it till I make it. I can tap dance on a stage and entertain you. Yes. No clue what is actually going on. And I really, really got back to that mindset for the Mm -hmm. first time in a long time Mm -hmm. where I just said, I'm going to have to fake it till I make it. And I remember walking through the halls and anyone that would smile at me would become their friend because someone needs to teach me how to not only do this job, but also how to adult because college doesn't teach you that either. And so my, my first year was just, meeting people and listening to people and being very open to feedback and going to people and saying like, is this right? Because I don't know if it's right. And I, rather you tell me it's wrong before I go to my manager and she gets mad at me because let, let's fix it together. It was a yeah. lot of buying lunches for people. I ordered so many edible arrangements throughout my first year out of college at the edible arrangement place, knew my name. They were like, oh, Legacy's back. And I was like, I need some strawberries for so-and-so because they helped me with this. It was a That lot. is so brilliant. Yes. It was a lot of that because I wanted people to know that I really value their time. Mm. Nobody is required to teach me anything. Mm-mm. And I was keenly aware that people were taking their time and teaching me how to be an adult. And what's so great about
1: that is that people are not expecting gratitude. I mean, people are so used to just being used up that, to have someone acknowledge it, it's such a great reminder of the, and then you don't have to feel so bad about asking for help because you know that you're going to give back to that person, mm-hmm. which I love, which is just such a great reminder for all of us. So what was your first tech company? What was the name of it? It's called NetApp. NetApp. Okay, got it. And then after NetApp, where did you go? Went Airbnb. And then after Airbnb, where did you go? Went to Facebook. I mean, shit. Yeah. All yeah. the big names. Yeah. So if you think about it, in the global business landscape around the world, you are at the most important companies oh, yeah. in a generation, one after another, having come into it, not knowing anything about anything. What kind of observations were you making when you look at the landscape of what tech companies are and what they're doing? Like, what do you think about all of it?
0: I think that people think that tech is really hard. And what I realized very quickly at NetApp, I had a mentor, Courtney, tell me one day. She said, You keep saying you don't know what you're doing. And she said, But I need you to tap into the strengths that you have because that will literally set you free. And I realized very quickly when I was at NetApp that my strengths were relationship building, telling the truth, and making people feel heard. So if I can be the one in the room that actually understands the truth, not what you want to say in front of the CEO. But the actual root of the issue, if I can identify that first, then I can also fix it first. Actually, my whole career, regardless of the title that I have, I am the person in the room that's like, okay, so here's the actual root. This person doesn't like this person. This person's mad at this person because they didn't give them a good performance rating. So this person refuses to do the work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to figure out how to get this work done from this person. And then this person will be nice. And then we'll get this done and put in a slide deck. And then we'll go to the next thing. They realized quickly a tech was, that's really what tech is. I think a lot of people glorify the tech industry because they are not keenly aware of what we are doing. Mm -hmm. And very similar to Ford, very similar to Nike, very similar to a grocery store. A tech company is building a product and they're shipping it out and they're figuring out how to make money from it. So it's really the dynamic in the conference room of all these personalities. That's right. And if you can figure out how to handle these personalities or at least be the one in the room that can identify each personality, you will win. And that's what I did very early on. So regardless of what company I went to, it was like, I'm dealing with people. And regardless of what people say, business is emotional because people are emotional about their money. this is an emotional room. And Mm -hmm. everyone has a reason to be in this room. Mm -hmm. And 10 times out of nine, it is not because they want to build a phenomenal product. That's Everyone has a reason, has selfish reason to be in this room. And if I can figure out why you want to be in this room, and if I can figure out how to navigate a scenario where you look good in the end, it's easier to work with you and you will be more encouraged to help me out. That's right. That's always the trick for people that,
1: you know, everybody's got strengths. And those of us that are really good communicators, we know that inherently in our bones that like, the more you meet the needs of your audience, the more they're going to meet your needs. But I want to just get a little bit more granular about like, for so one of the things that you're known for is this truth telling, this capacity to speak truth to power. Just say what the problem is in a room of people that cannot figure out what the problem is. You're very good at identifying and speaking truth. So if you were coaching someone, and I know this isn't what you do for a living, but I'm going to ask anyway. (laughs) If you were coaching someone who really struggles with telling the truth, or who really struggles with saying the thing that needs to be said, but they're afraid, like what advice do you have for them? What are they not aware
0: of? My advice to them is that you not telling the truth is actually going to hurt you and everyone else in the end. The petty in me always says, you not telling the truth is going to make us sit here and do this horrible work even longer. So just tell the truth. But then also I think what's really important is for people that want to tell the truth, find the person you trust to tell the truth to. Oh, I love that. A lot of times there's this misnomer that truth tellers just come in a room, balls busting, and this person did this. And that's actually not what I do. I'm the person, you have to create safety in order for people to tell the truth. So truth telling actually starts with relationship building. I have to somehow make you feel safe to tell me what's really going on. You have to feel like you can come to me and know that I'm not going to go to your manager or someone influential and be like, well, Brownwood said, but yeah. I'm going to take that information and I'm going to use it so we all can benefit. Amen. Many times when I'm telling the truth in huge meetings, no name is coming up. I'm yeah. the one who's doing the background work to put it together like a puzzle and I'm presenting the puzzle. Yes. And there are very few times when I actually have to tell someone that I do not trust where I've got this puzzle information because leadership doesn't care as long as the work gets done.
1: That is so unbelievably correct. So thank you for saying that. I think that's just great for people to know that so much that actually the core of being good at telling the truth is having good relationships and just knowing how to even to shore up support so that when you do tell the truth, somebody has got your back. Some people might call that politics. I don't think that's politics. I think that is wise humaning. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're in all of these positions at these iconic companies, in these iconic positions of truth telling. And then all of a sudden, you get pulled into the DEI conversation. Oh, yeah. Or is it not all of a sudden? Like, how does Lexi B go from
0: high performer to high performer plus DEI voice crying in the wilderness? It started from day one because I knew that on my first day at NetApp, when I looked in the room, I was like, okay, so our experiences in this room are keenly different. When you are walking into conference rooms, trying to just learn your day job, remember being 22. Like I always tell people, when you graduate from college and you start that first job, it's not just learn your day job. It's also this daunting experience of learning how to be an adult. There are a lot of layers that the ages of 20, 22 to 26 deal with, that I do not think we discuss enough. And a lot of it has nothing to do with the actual job. So I'm navigating all of that. And I start realizing that there are people in my new college grad class who have access to information and resources that I do not. And when I say that, I'm talking about going to the lunchroom and eating with some people of my new college grad class and they're telling me how their manager has broken down the performance review process. My manager never told me there was a performance review process. So wow. imagine six to nine months into my job, I'm just chugging along, and this person's like, "You know that we have a test next month, right?" Oh, and i like, test yes, what test? And they were like, "The performance review." Have you, you you've written your stuff down, right? And I was like, no, "Tell me more." And so I just started realizing that there were gaps in my curriculum that I wasn't receiving and also keenly aware that these people, because of what they looked like and who they were, they were having access to rooms that I wasn't having access to. So many times it wasn't their manager giving them the blueprint of how to build their career. It was them getting invited to the golf course with the senior VP of engineering. Wow. So I was like, I need to figure this out. So I figured it out. I am a black 22 year old woman in this job and there's not a lot of me, but I am missing and lacking information that will literally affect if I eat tomorrow. And so I started connecting with the few black leaders at the company and I would go to them and I would say, you need to tell me how to adult because these other people are learning and I'm not because I'm not invited to those rooms. And can I ask you a
1: question about this, Lexi, just to pause for a second? Do you attribute it to just racism or is it our stupid human capacity or or tendency to just look for our younger selves? So these white dudes are looking at the young golfer going, oh, my God, he reminds me of me as a younger self. I'm going to bring him in. And is that racially biased? Hell, yes, it is. I want you to talk to that for a second. Is it both malintent and
0: unconscious? What do you attribute it to? I should it to both. I think that you're right. I think that there is a layer of you remind me of myself. I went to Stanford University the number of times that I have been able to get in rooms because that person was a Stanford graduate. One of my first mentors who taught me how to program manage Mark Warren, shout out to Mark Warren. He was a Stanford grad. And so I am keenly aware that that man would have lunch with me every Wednesday because I was also a Stanford grad. And because my dad bought me a Stanford alumni cup, when I graduated from college and he said, put this on your desk. Oh and my God, God that's, that's genius. genius. And he was like, why? And he's like, do not drink out of it. Put it on your desk. And it was one of those huge cups. And he said, I am not in the business world, but people need to know that you went to Stanford. So other Stanford alum can know that you exist. Oh my God, that's so genius. That is so freaking <laughs> smart. I, I can't. recommend it to everyone. You should have your alumni cup on your desk. So Mark saw my desk. And he was like, you're a Stanford grad. I'm a Stanford grad. You remind me of me, even though he's this tall white man. And I'm this very short black woman. And he said, I'm going to help you. Whoa. I am keenly aware that's because he saw himself in me because of this shared collegiate experience. Wow. The racism and homophobia and sexism come to play. Yes, is that people who are not white, cisgendered, heteronormative men have a higher increase of the possibility that they are not going to have a shared experience with the people in power. That's right. And so therefore, they don't get that you remind me of me. And to be very transparent, I think a lot of people, a lot of white men in my career, they have actually been bamboozled because they're like, well, she went to Stanford, so therefore we're the same. And then we start getting to know each other and I start talking about some real truths and you can tell on their face, they're very shocked of who I am. Because they have actively decided that because I went to a specific school that they have deemed is a specific way that they expect me to perform and behave in a way that I actually don't perform in. And so it kind of goes back and forth. But I do think they do come together. And in order for it to be dismantled, people need to stop just saying this person reminds me of me. They need to literally sit there and say they remind me of me because of X. That's a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes so much, so
1: much unbelievable sense. And for anybody, this for any leaders that are listening to this right now, really sit with that. Are you only reaching out to the people that remind you of yourself? And how might you not do that and reach out to people that you think you could be a, a blessing to or, or helpful to? Okay. So you, from jump, you realize that there are real gaps
0: the landscape is not freaking even is what you're realizing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because even in my own professional development, I mean, I'll be the first one to say my first performance review, I basically failed out. And when I say that at the time of at a company, we had a scale, I think, of five numbers. One is an F if we're going back to high school. Five is an A plus. I got a two. And it's because no one told me that I had to prepare for this. And I remember I got a two. I'm a year out of college. I'm on a performance improvement plan. Holy I'm crap. Conference room, just bawling by myself. Cause I'm like, how did, how did this happen? You? Yes. And it took my fairy godmothers and godfathers at NetApp, this core group of Black leaders who sat me down and said, we will tell you how you got. It. This is actually how career development works. You didn't write anything down. You didn't have the keywords. You didn't do this. And I was like, but no one told me to do that. And that's when it all registered that, oh, because other people, and I remember after the performance review, I built really good connections with people in my new college grad class, regardless of what we looked like. And so we started comparing notes. So I remember yes. I would lunch, and I was like, okay, so what did you say in your performance review? And they would bring them out. And I was like, oh, I didn't say it like that. And it was very clear that someone yeah. taught them how to use those words. Those are not how you write a performance review is not instinctive. No. Like, so you and you and you all have similar copy paste performance reviews that sound phenomenal. And here I am. And I'm like, that's why I'm on a pit. This this sounds horrible. This is not a good product. Everything clicked where I was like, I need to go find people that are going to tell me how to make a good career development product because I can't do it by myself and no one's taking me to the golf course. Oh my God. Okay, so actually now I want to like
1: cut jump to another question because I think this is actually feeding into something large that I've been thinking about, which is with George Floyd's murder, the world sort of turned upside down. Yeah. And suddenly every single leader that was worth anything was like, whoa, we need to be thinking about this. We're going to invest in DEI. We're going to boost the budget. The budgets went through the roof. You know, you couldn't hire a DEI consultant fast enough. It was top of mind. CEOs were lighting up their chiefs of staff. Like, how did you let me, you know, get this far without telling me that we had a DEI problem? I mean, it was everywhere you went, it was the conversation. Cut -hmm. to 2023. That conversation has gotten very quiet. Mm -hmm. Budget seemed to be uh, shrinking. It's almost like the people in power expected a coin operating reaction. Like I'm going to invest in DEI. It's going to get better. It's going to get fixed. And here we go. And just two years into it, it's like, well, did we fix it? Is it, you know, we're not going to deal with it. Let's. So what I want to hear is how would you characterize what happened since
0: George Floyd? And are we thinking about DEI the wrong way? We've always thought about DEI the wrong way because people in this country, and I would argue in the Western society, they want to fix things through money. It's capitalism 101. You cannot fix the issues with DEI through money when it started as a colonial problem. So we continually, especially in corporate spaces, want to just throw money at a situation for a quarter or for a year. And when it doesn't work, we say, okay, that didn't work. We're going to let that go and do something else. DEI just can't be fixed through money. DEI has to be fixed through accountability. So if we look at the history of the world, how it started was that white people colonized the world. And in that colonization, they created labels that were very demeaning. And basically the high level of that label was, if if you are not white, then you are subclass. And because you are subclass, there are things that you must do and there are things that you can't do. And so as a person for me specifically, as a Black person born in St. Louis, Missouri, whose roots are in Mississippi from the enslavement of African people, what happened with my lineage was they said, because you are Black, you are now a slave. As I tell people, my people were never slave; they were enslaved. But what that means is that there are certain alienable rights that we were not received because of what we looked like, right? I also like to remind people that, especially in America, we do not want to have to do that deep dive work because people do not want to be accountable for their actions. I'd like to remind folks, I was born in 1988. My parents were born in the early 60s. When my parents were born, they were not born with the right to vote. So this is not far away. I am a living product. I am the first generation in my family born with the right to vote. I am the first generation in my family that as a woman could have a bank account without a man signing it. This is not far away. So yes, we need money in order to support accountability. But what happened with George Floyd was people just threw money out there and said, figure it out. But there was no actual pretense for accountability. And that's why we're still here now.
1: And also Lexi, speak to, I think part of what's made this really tricky too, is that we threw a bunch of money at it. We made a bunch of statements and then we didn't give people the language to have these conversations with each other. And so there was a whole bunch of really big feelings that were totally legit and necessary. And then there was a fragility in being unable to hear the big feelings, the big statements, the big I needs. And the fragility um, in power was like, well, that didn't go well. Yeah. I didn't like the way that conversation felt. So I'm out. Exactly. So part of me, like as a communication coach, I'm all, you know, I'm to to a hammer. Everything looks like a freaking nail. But to me, part of the dynamic of DEI that I would love to hear your take on is I think white people thought that if they joined the fight or if they joined the solution, that we were going to be unconditionally loved and accepted and welcomed all the time. And that's not the agreement. If you're willing to stand in a DEI conversation, you know, as a a white leader, which let's be honest, the majority of my podcast listeners are white leaders, not all, but the majority, we have to be comfortable being diminished by our own words that we spoke out loud that we shouldn't have. We have to be comfortable being not enough. We have to be comfortable being schooled. There's a tremendous amount of humility required. Speak to that for a second, Lexi.
0: You need to be humble because again, history repeating itself. How we got here was that I think that white people were not schooled or were not checked. And when or slash when they were checked, because as I remind people, I come from militant ancestors. So white people were checked a lot because of yes. the, the power that checking was not concluded, right? That checking, if, if a black person or a brown person checked a white person in this country a hundred years ago. That could end into murder. So we also have to understand that as well. God, that's so true. And I think that any person in the room who has the highest position of power, and many times that is me, I'm going to check my own privilege, right? You have to be able to take in all this information and then say, what do you need me to do to help? Because freedom fighting can look like so many different things. It can be as simple as writing a check. It can be as simple as going into a room and saying, I think Lexi deserves this promotion. The data and the statistics that show the number of black and brown people in tech who have mentors but do not have sponsors is astonishing, right? I remember when 2020 hit, I told everybody that I worked with, I don't need another mentor. I need a sponsor. Oh, okay. Talk about the difference between sponsorship and mentorship. That's so important. <laughs> a mentor is someone that sees themselves in you regardless of how they see themselves and they will take the time to teach you how to do your job. Many of these people I met at NetApp, right, in my first year where they would sit with me during lunch. They would have happy hour with me. They'd pull me aside from a meeting room and say, hey, this is how you handle this hard conversation. They're teaching you something. They're teaching you a skill. A sponsor is someone that may not have the time to teach you a skill or frankly may not care enough to teach you a skill, but will walk in a room and say, you know what? Ron needs to be on top of that. I met her in the hallway. She seems cool. We had a good rapport. The vibe was awesome. Let's give her a shot to lead it. The number of Black and Brown people who have, and there's actual data to prove this, Black and Brown people have more mentors, especially new college grads, than white new college grads. White new college grads have more sponsors than Black and Brown people. And I'm really tired of the conversation in tech of when we talk about DEI specifically, which is we need to recruit more people of color. And that's true. If you don't recruit them and bring them into your companies, that's a problem. What I really focus on in my line of work is how are you going to retain this talent? Because the white kids have the blueprint. I went to Stanford. I learned the blueprint from the white kids (laughs) that stole it.
1: Yeah.
0: With our waffles and breakfast. And I was like, who's your mom? Oh. (laughs) Okay. So you want me to go to dinner with your mom, who may or might not be the senior VP of Chanel, and when she's in town, I guess I can meet y'all at Cheesecake Factory, right? So, oh my I was, God, I was learning the blueprint in college. And so, even at 18, 19 years old, I call my parents and say, Okay, y'all, there are just things that I don't know. And that was sponsorship. Yeah. And so, you have people, generally speaking, that are in high positions of power and privilege because of what they look like and how they identify. They're getting the sponsorship in the blueprint as early as three, four, five years old. That's right. And you have people who are not getting that blueprint. So, everybody wants to recruit them. Everyone wants to put them in classes and say, go do this LinkedIn learning and learn all these things and get all these certificates. And I'm the one in the room that's like, that certificate is not going to get you promoted. So what are we doing? There's clearly a difference in how we are teaching people. I need white people to stand in their power and say, why am I not sponsoring black and brown people? Why am I not sponsoring trans people? Why am I not sponsoring queer people? Why am I not sponsoring poor people? Why am I not sponsoring first generation immigrant people? Lexi, what do you say to the part
1: of us? And when I say us, I mean white people. What do you say to the part of us that says, God, you know, when I really think, why am I not sponsoring all of the people you just mentioned? The answer that boils up inside of me is the reason I'm not is because I'm afraid I'm going to fuck it up. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. And then they're going to tell all their friends. And before I know it, I'm
0: canceled. What do you say to that? Because that is real. That is real. I think it's actually twofolded. I think that's one reason why white people don't do it. I think the other reason is white people are afraid that if that person messes up, which they will because it's human nature to mess up, that they are responsible for that mess up to acknowledge that. So we have people who are like, I'm not going to sponsor because I'm afraid of being canceled. I'm also not going to sponsor because I don't think this person can be perfect. And if they're not perfect, then I'm in trouble. And that second thing comes literally is the definition of colonialism. You are now singling someone out who is not white. You're putting them on a pedestal and you're expecting them to be three times as good than you were at their age. That's right. If they don't cross an eye, the, the door will never open again. You know, that I always, so right. the amount of time that I've had imposter syndrome in my career is very, very low compared to the amount of times of just like insane crippling anxiety of being in a position to be in a room and being like, if I mess up. Because you have to I be perfect. never come, I, will, I have to be perfect. So that's the first yeah. thing. To your point about the cancel thing, no one's going to cancel you if you come from a great place. That's right. That's right. That well, I'm also right. Fired, And, you know, and I've talked to people about this and it, it's always baffling to me as a black body, as a woman, as a person in musical theater, I always tell people there's not a lot. You can tell me that I a, haven't already heard or or B, that is really going to hurt my feelings. Yeah, And so just like I come to work every day with my crippling anxiety of being perfect, you need to come to work and be okay with being wrong about how you treat me and allow me to tell you how I want to be treated. That's right.
1: And also, I think just from a communication structure standpoint, I had a trans therapist on my podcast, like, I don't know, mm-hmm. two years ago, brilliant guy, Sean Garcia. And I, I, before I even had him on the podcast, I was like, Sean, my biggest fear is that I'm going to fuck this interview up because I'm going to say the wrong thing. And I want you to know that you get to check me. Like, tell me, I'm, I'm here to learn from you. And I apologize in advance if I say something that in any way makes you feel demeaned, bad. Just know that like, that is the last thing I want. And he was like, I've got you. And I said, I totally said things that were like, just ignorant in the course of that conversation. And he checked me in the conversation. And I think for leaders that are afraid that that's part of the deal. If you start the relationship by saying, I am all in for you, doesn't mean I'm not going to, you know, correct you if I think you're making a mistake, but I want you to correct me. Like, I think that does that mitigate some of that fear, Lexi? Is that 100
0: percent, 100 percent? And also knowing I always tell people, just say, what do you need from me? Beautiful. As a straight Black woman, the number of times that I am in rooms where I am the biggest privilege and power in the room, and I just say, what do you need from me? When you actually ask people what you need from them, and you've created a safe space for them to tell you the truth, they will tell you the truth and you will get clear actions. I've had many bad managers in my career. I've had some phenomenal managers and the ones that are phenomenal, they just like, what what do you need from me? Amazing. And I tell them. And they and guess what? They do it. Or one of my favorite managers, he wouldn't always do it, but he would listen and he would say, okay, so I can't do that. But what if I did this? What if I met you at 50%? And I'm like, I can make that work, right? And it was this constant communication with him where it was very clear that he was like, I'm just going to sit here yeah, and you're going to tap in when you need me. And when you need me, I expect you to tell me what I need to do or I can give you options of what I think you should do. I need white people to say that more. What do you need from me? That's in right. my career. I've been in so many companies and it's only been one time in my career where someone brought up that conversation to me. I am now keenly aware of my own career development. So you know, my first day at a job, I'll be like, and this is what I need from you. And I created you a document. You can look it over later. I've emailed it to you. I've slacked it to you. I've sent it through a Harry Potter owl. I've done it <laughs> You cannot tell me you did not know that these are my boundaries, right? Yes, Yes. yeah. There's only been one manager that actually did that. And he was like, how can I be a good manager to you? And I was floored because I was ready for my paper and my presentations because that keeps me safe at work. Yeah. I need white people in power to walk into the room and say, what what do you need from me? And be honest if they can give it. And here's the thing, if you can't give it, say, but I know someone who can and I'm going to introduce you to them. I'm going to sponsor you. I cannot do that. You need red paint. I don't know how to get red paint. I hate red paint. I don't want to do it. But you know, I may or may not know the CMO of Home Depot and they have a lot of paint. So I'm just going to send a text message and it is yours. Beautiful. You were
1: inspired to create a new podcast that is coming soon. You can sit with us. I'm so excited. Yes. And tell us about it. What, what's
0: the intention behind the show? You know, thinking about my career, and I'm I'm always keenly stepping into my privilege, because even though I know that I have a lot of lack of privilege, I have a lot of privilege. Mm. Right. And I want to mm. use that privilege to help other people. One of the biggest privileges I had was for whatever reason, I had random people who would see me in the hallway and say, I'm gonna help you. Like we talked about earlier with all of yes. my edible arrangements. Um, yes, I have been turned down for help before, but it is very rare. My career. I am not here because I'm good at my job. I do think I'm good at my job. I've worked really hard to be good at my job. I'm here because there's been a whole lot of people who have told me the truth about how I perform at work. They have given me feedback. They've given me actionable feedback. They've given it to me in a way that I can take it and then learn, and they have cheered me on. And those conversations are not scalable. And so as I've gotten older, I'm like, how can we scale these conversations? How can I scale these transformative conversations that I've had where I one time did yell at somebody in a conference room because they weren't getting it? And I was like, why am I here? You (laughs) are wasting my time. And I distinctly remember someone at the end of the conference room pulled me into another conference room for an hour and a half and said, you were right. And this is why you can't say it like that. That was a moment. Yeah. Yeah. I had to learn how to have hard conversations. I had to learn, as I call it, how to professionally cuss people out without them knowing that I'm cussing them out. I had to learn how to tell people no without people saying that I'm aggressive. I've had people in my life who set me down and said, look, you are a black woman. I am keenly aware that when you walk in this room, you can't say it like I'm gonna say it because I'm a white man. But fun facts, if you don't hold them accountable, you're gonna lose your job. You need to go figure that out. Oh God. And some people think that's horrible for this man to say. I thought it was brilliant. And what did I do? I founded an organization for Black women so we can figure out how to do those things, right? And so this podcast is to be able to have those real life lesson conversations with leaders around the world and to scale it for other people of this is how you have a hard conversation. This is why communication actually impacts your coin more than maybe you doing your job well. This is what it means to brag at work without seeming like, oh, you're the bragger. This is what anti-racism works for leaders. This is how you divest at work. We have a session on literally quiet quitting because the person said, which I love, is he was like, you can quiet quit whenever you want. This is how you do it in a strategic way. This is how you save your energy in order to look for a new job because you have decided that this place is not investing in you. Because it's capitalism. You can do that. And so that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast is to bring people together of very different backgrounds and asking them, what is one of those transformative lessons that you had to learn and that you're now really good at that you might tell me in a one-on-one at a happy hour, let's record it and tell the world that so everyone can learn. Oh my God,
1: that is right on time. I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited that I'm one of the guests. You are, you are, yes. I'm so excited about it. And I think I'll end this conversation with like a fun question. Okay. I remember when I was on your podcast, in fact, I literally, one of my newsletters totally quotes you. I'll send it (laughs) to you when it comes out. But you asked me this question that was so freaking juicy, I could not. And it's a signature question of yours. So I'm going to ask it of you. This is Lexi's signature question. I am not trying to say it's my question. (laughs) The question was, where do your people come from and how has that made you who you are? We have heard a little bit about where your people have come from, but what do you want to say about how that has informed who you are today? Because you're you're kind of a big deal. Oh, thank
0: you. Like I said, I am a descendant of the transatlantic slave trade, of the enslavement of West African bodies um, by way of Mississippi on both sides of my family. My people are a militant people. I come from a militant family, okay? They called me Minnie Malcolm when I was little. I come from a militant family. And how that has shaped me was it, it, it is, it has required me to always advocate for me mm-hmm. and for others. Growing up, I had an uncle who used to always, a great uncle, who used to always tell me when he picked me up from school or take me to school, when he used to say, God, community, family. Wow. If you can do that, You could do anything. So I come from this lens of freedom fighting. I come from this lens of activism. And I just so happen to do it professionally in the tech world. I come from a place where, you know, my grandfather used to always say it's always the right time to do right. I'm not going to allow people to be treated poorly in my presence. And I'm not going to allow you to treat me poorly. I had to learn very early in my career that I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. So I'm going to go out with a bang. <laughs> and yeah, it's be my bang. Because there's been many times in my career where I have been crucified at work for doing things that other people want me to do. And then I've been crucified at work for doing what I think is right. And now I'm at the stage in my career where I'm just like, well, if y'all gonna kill me, then I'm just going to do what... Yeah. I, I speak about ancestry a lot. Mm-hmm. I really feel, and this sounds really weird, but I really feel the spirit and the soul of my ancestors on my back at all times. And it's yes. it's a hard feeling to describe verbally, mm-hmm. but I always tell people when I walk in a room, it's not just me. It is my grandmothers. These two very, very different women, but who freedom fighted, right? It is my grandfather, who was the first black mayor of a major city in St. Louis. It is my great grandparents who I never met. And it is my parents who are alive and thank God they're well, even though they don't live in California. I come with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So when you invite me to a party, <laughs> Everybody shows up, comes out in me. And I'm just so forever grateful to come from a people that just know who they are and are so confident in knowing who they are, despite the world telling them that who they are is wrong.
1: That sounds like core to that, Lexi. What I'm hearing is a faith in God, because when the world is trying to tell you, A, you can lean on B because you know it's it comes from God. Is that part of the secret of the courage of your whole lineage? Because you oh are God. a person that like radiates courage. And courage in 2023 is no small thing. But courage in the construct of your ancestors, that's a whole different level.
0: Oh, faith is very, very big. You know, I am very keenly aware of my spirituality and I'm very tapped into it. And the older I get, I realize that... God does not put me in spaces that I don't need to be in to learn a lesson or to succeed. And I think that we all suffer from impatience. So growing up, I, you know, i missed an audition. I wouldn't get what I wanted. and It was this big thing. Every single time in my life where I have not gotten something that I have wanted, it was because God said, you, you don't need to be in there. Because nine months later, I'm like, oh, that's why. <laughs> You're right. I did not need to be there. I did not need to be there. And that's why I'm very tapped into my faith, my divine faith, but also my ancestry, because Mm -hmm. I really believe that everything happens for a reason as long as I do my part. So if I wake up every day and I do my part and I'm a good person and I help people and I advocate for myself and most importantly, I tell the truth. I'm just going to let the ancestors and God deal with the rest, and there's many times where I'm disappointed, because disappointment is just part of human nature. That's there's right. many times where I interview for things and I don't get them or I go out for things I don't get them. And then eight months later, I'm like, "Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a good lesson. So once again, I'm going to do my part and work very hard and wait for the blessings that God and my ancestors have just decided that is for me. And what is for me? this will be for me. Bronwyn, what is for you will be for you. And there's nothing that I can do or anyone in the world to take that from you. Amen. Above us. Right. And it lets
1: us be less anxious. It lets us be more present. It lets us be more intentional.
0: Lexi, you are such a blessing and a gift on this planet. Well, thank you. You too. You are phenomenal. You know that I'm such a fan of yours and I'm so honored to be here. Oh
1: my God, it's just been such a gift. Have a beautiful day and thank you for being with us. Hey, if you haven't already, hit subscribe so you can get my latest podcast episodes delivered hot off the press, or share this with someone who could use it. If you're looking to go further on this journey as a communicator, head over to Communications.com forward slash subscribe and get on that newsletter. You get fresh tips every Monday morning to set you up for the week. And on the last Saturday of the month, you'll get a short email with my favorite things that I'm into. If you're dealing with a tough client or work situation and you need better skills for managing hard conversations, check out my No Enemy Conversation course. It's at noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com and it is self-paced and it is all there for you. Lastly, if your company or organization needs a high voltage keynote speaker who knows how to melt faces and blow minds, virtually or in real life, I am your gal. I have two dozen different fantastic keynote topics and you and I, we can make something killer happen. So shoot me a note and let's do it. That's Bronwyn at bronwyncommunications.com. Take care and shine on. We need your light.